0: Welcome to episode 301 of the Filmmaker's Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk indie films. Unbelievable. From from indie films to studio films and...
1: (laughs) Everything in between.
0: How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to do what Dom's just done. Royalty Adam up. Yeah, in our very, very... Humble opinion. Right, great. Uh, (laughs) uh, This is episode 301, can you believe it? And this week we have on the fantastic director, Tobias Lindholm. Um, He is the director of films such as R, The Hunt, Hijacking, A War, Another Round, which is Oscar nominated for, and film that he's here to talk about today, The Good Nurse. He joins our host, Dom Lemoire with the fantastic screenwriter, Christy Wilson cairns who you will know from this podcast, friend of the podcast.
1: Nothing else. That's, that's, how, you you that's how you should know the podcast. We gave her fame on that nineteen <laughs>
0: seventeen. <1917. laughs> Did she? Oh, hang on! Didn't she scribble that one yet? She, she wrote nineteen seventeen. <laughs> she wrote last night in Soho and uh, Star the Wars Goodness, uh, and Star Wars as well. Yeah. She's a superstar. She,
1: she's, she's, she's probably one of the only famous writers around there. That's just, just literally a writer. Um, mm. That is known for being a writer
0: yeah she's blown up in the last couple of years and this is her third time on the podcast she's a friend of yeah. dom's now big time you had drinks afterwards right um
1: working. Oh, on okay yeah. working on it uh-
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> no it's, it's 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 nice it's really it's it's really nice to 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 meet people that you've kind of seen do these films and you know it was at the Corinthia hotel years ago Oh, you
0: love going there don't
1: you we all we all hung out um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's just nice to see good people doing well and she, she, she's a great person with a, a you know, good attitude.
0: Great. Uh, I am Giles Alderson. You have been listening to Dom Lemoir and you're Tobias V's, aren't you? I, I think I am, yes. Yeah, he's the editor of this podcast and you heard his lovely voice on last week's episode, 300th episode. And I hope you enjoyed that one, by the way. That was the first of its kind, apart from my Christmas specials, where we're just going to chat with the hosts, um, so we're going to do more of that. Thank you for your feedback uh some lovely lovely comments you're amazing for doing so so yes we will be doing more of that more of those chats with our hosts uh and next time i imagine that ian sharp dan richardson lucinda rotatacra andrew roger and robbie mccain will be able to join us uh so fingers crossed for you that think so. you think so you'd think so you'd think so you'd think so we'll break we'll we'll mix it up we'll mix it up if you haven't seen my socials this week or last week the trailer for Three Millionaire has dropped. It is out in cinemas on November the twenty-fifth. It's very exciting.
2: Mm. What a great trailer!
0: Thank you. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and the poster.
0: Yeah, the poster's amazing. Tobias, yeah.
1: Tobias was hit over the head with that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Dom's film, When the Screaming Starts, uh, is, is out yep. as well now on all good and evil streaming platforms. Mm. So do go support indie mm. filmmaking. Tobias, what have you go- got that people can watch right now? That you've made. Uh, you can, you can, I don't know. Well, you did all the translations on Wolves of War uh, from oh, yeah. English to German. You wrote those scenes. You're massively influential in uh, in helping me write that. So, yes. You can watch Wolves of War. Yeah. And you probably hear me scream in the background. Yes. Yes. You did some of the voiceovers for it. All The, yes. idea, the looping. That's right. Uh, any more yeah. Giles films we can promote right There's now? too many already. There's, There's too, many. too many It's ridiculous. Stop it. It's a strange number of films. Films. Yes. Stranger yeah. in a bed number of <laughs> oh, <laughs>
1: oh, yeah. them. Well, I, I'm very I'm very excited about this episode because uh, I'd coincidentally just watched two seasons of Borgen. Completely I, I had no idea that this interview was coming. And uh, Tobias, other Tobias um, Lindholm had, had written them and um, it's a really brilliant series it's amazing acting it's got that kind of Danish slight sort of Scandinavian edge to it but it's basically like a sort of a Danish West Wing yeah he's, he's a really good guy and uh, this is a really interesting chat that we had and probably my first hour-long studio interview which was mm. actually quite uh, slightly terrifying but I think I'd done so many over the, the sort of preceding days that it was actually it went really well so I'm uh, I'm very proud of these these chats and, and what uh, what we learnt from these two fantastic people
0: yeah you should be I'm proud of you it's not easy to do and yeah to, to, to lead them well done especially in person so amazing
1: the good nurse is an, an absolutely incredible drama um, starring Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne I had the pleasure of meeting Eddie who introduced me to Tobias and the producer Scott wow. Franklin so that was a that was a pleasant sort of um, precede to the interview
0: that's wow. really cool. Yeah,
1: it's a cool person to be introduced by.
0: But, absolutely, yeah. You're like, oh, my <laughs> friend Eddie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Piss off, Eddie. <laughs> I'm trying of a chat here. Uh, it <laughs> is uh, <laughs> the goodness is out in cinemas now, and it is on Netflix on the 26th of October. So it's literally days away. Go support this film. You're going to love it really really cool uh, it's a gripping thriller based on true events so this is two oscar nominees and very recent oscar nominees as well so what a joy for you guys to listen to on the 301st episode the incredible true story of the good nurse uh, with our pre male hosts dom Lemoir and tobias lindholm and crystal wilson kens enjoy
1: So Christy, welcome back to the Filmmakers Podcast. We're delighted to have you on the podcast again. Thank you. And you're making a habit of premiering your films at the uh, the LFF, which is am, quite but, a thing.
3: Well, it's local. It's right around the corner from my flat and my office. So, you know. Convenient. Very hand-y, but... it's con- that's it, it's mostly convenient. So how
1: does it feel? <laughs> You've got an amazing film out, The Good Nurse, watched it last week. How are you doing at that am
3: I'm, I'm really happy. You know, I love watching films and cinemas with an audience and, and we got to see it at TIFF with an audience for the first time and I'm really looking forward to seeing it like my home turf. Yeah, I'm ecstatic and I love that the festival's back. It seems to be in full, like, Proper kind of force after the pandemic.
1: Yeah, I mean, Cannes this year was the first one where I'd gone back and it was just there was just everything was on. People were there, parties, canopies. Okay, it, it really felt like the industry had returned. You
3: missed the canopies, didn't? Oh uh, yeah, that yeah. wasn't getting happening. That was one. that was pure COVID that was just been <laughs> spread yeah, they're, before. They're that.
1: making a slow comeback. <laughs> I'm I'm campaigning strong for them. So so how did this fantastic movie come to you? Because if I'm correct, yeah. we met you here for 1917 a few years you ago. Did. And I heard yesterday, at the at um, speaking to I think it was the director or the producer, uh-huh. that this was in the pipeline beforehand.
3: Yes, this was my first paid job. Wow. 10 years ago, I um, pitched for this and got it. Um, and what happened was, so my, um, my script ether went on the blacklist, I signed with an American agent, CA, who I love, and they sent me, you know, a stack of books to read that were like open assignments that were out there in the ether. Pun intended, and um, Appreciate it. this was um, yeah, this was in the stack, and I remember going like, you know, I don't really want to do another serial killer movie because my first script had been very murdery, and I was like, I'm not really interested in it, and I thought I'll read the first chapter and I'll like I'll say no, but with you know some authority, and then I actually stayed up all night reading the book because um, Charles Graeber's book is so well written, so well constructed, you keep thinking you've reached. This is the peak horror. Oh my God, this is the moment. And it just goes and goes and goes. And then the last third of that book, you meet Amy, who's agent Amy in the book. was a confidential format. And I remember thinking, this is the film. This is it.
1: Oh, the last third.
3: The last third. So it's like oh, wow. single mum, working class, nurse, shouldn't have to be the one to stop a serial killer it should be the cops it should be the system it should be the hospital it should be anything else other than her and it falls at her feet and I thought that's the story I want to tell because I had no idea how you go in with Charles Cullen how you make him the lead I couldn't wrap my head around it and, and I don't think I even could today but back then it was always Amy
1: and yeah. How how do you even begin to adapt a novel like that? I mean, I mean, choosing the scenes. I mean, if the, yeah. the, you've, you've picked the third, okay, yeah, you so, picked so you, the third. You narrowed, narrowed it down. Slightly. But yeah. but how do you how do you sort of think? Okay, well, this is exactly where we're going to start the movie because it it does start with her. Yes. And I think it's really good that it does start with her. And I think as an audience, you're also thinking, oh, where's where's Eddie? when's yes. he, he going to come yes. in? But you get the time to sort of, I suppose, immerse yourself into her journey and the sort of the struggle of you know, the the industry, really.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, look, I would love to tell you that I did it all on my own and I'm a genius. But actually, the, the truth of the matter is is that you you sort of have fantastic collaborators. Uh, and way back at the beginning, it was Scott Franklin, Josh Stern, Darren Aronofsky. And we talked a lot about it. and And in part of my research, I... You know, I got to go and work two weeks of night shifts at a burn unit, wow. Connecticut, shadowing nurses. I got to meet the cops. Uh, I spent a lot of time with Charles Graeber and got full access to his archives. And he introduced me to the real Amy, and I spent a weekend with her. and Even at the time then, I was like, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to construct this. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to kind of wrangle this story that feels like smoke a lot of the time. And she told me that she actually had a heart condition during this time period where she thought she was going to die and that um, one time she collapsed on shift and Charles then essentially nursed her. And we were thinking, well, okay, there's the most important kind of midpoint shift of the film is this, that she's dying. And that allowed me to then understand the sort of structure, how the story should be told. And then I suppose the other, you know, MVP is obviously Tobias Lindholm, <laughs> who when he came on board, you know, which was probably about six years ago, um, that Tobias and I were working together, when he came on board, he was like Everything that's not truth has to go. He's like, the the scariest version of this story is the truest version of the story. And he was so right. And so we stripped a lot of stuff out that had kind of like, I suppose, like gunked together over the years. And we thinned it all down and we just leaned really into Amy, really into humanity uh, and really into what it takes to actually stop someone like. Charles Cullen, and so yeah, I guess with a lot of help is how you tell that story.
1: <laughs> was it was it shocking? Like, I mean, from from our perspective, we're in the UK. We, you know, you break a leg, you have, you have a heart attack, you yeah, you, yeah. you go into the hospital, and someone sorts you out basically. Like unless it's like really. Cosmetic. And then you
3: don't get hit by a bill that means you can't eat for three months. Right? Yeah, exactly. Crucial.
1: Or, or just literally die because yeah, you, you yeah, can't you afford can't it.
3: afford it. Um, it's so jarring to me. Obviously, I I listen. The NHS has its problems. But ultimately, it's probably the greatest thing we of the country have ever done because mm. you don't have to go homeless because your kid has leukemia, imagine. So I'm I'm a big fan of socialised healthcare and I really felt from the moment I started reading the book and through all my research that um, I don't think Charles Cullen would have been able to kill for as long as he killed in any other system unless you have profit over patients. And the American healthcare system ultimately is profit over patients. And so I think you're always gonna have bad people who do bad things, but the fact that he could do it for nine years in many different hospitals and kill almost 400 people, or maybe more than 400 people, we don't know, um, feels like it could only happen in that system.
1: I kind of feel like the way that you put together the story, Mm. he's one of the bad guys, and the, law, the lawyers yes. and the, the kind of the medical institution are the other bad guys. I mean, how did you how did you balance that? I mean, you know, the, all of the different hospitals that that turned it away, and then then creating characters because I, I mean, the the female sort of lawyer or representative has like a bit of, a little, little bit of a little bit of a conscience that sort of develops it as you go through. Yeah, and then the sort of the colleagues are a little bit more ruthless. And how, how do you sort of balance that so it feels Authentic, but also carries the truth.
3: I mean, well, you just you just double down in truth, right? That's the only way you can really tell that story. And I think the thing is, is like the the I'm sure the person who Kim Dickens' character, I'm sure who inspired it, was remorseful and and was worried about what she was a part of, but she was just trapped in the system. And I think so many of us feel totally overwhelmed by the systems around us, not just in America, but here, even in politics at the moment, you feel totally inconsequential how can you make a change and i think a lot of people in these systems were just working to what the system wants and then you hit someone like amy who's like the system's wrong okay well how do we fix this problem and that's it i mean that's the real takeaway for me is like in broken systems you still have the ability to put your hand up and say guys this can't work this way this can't be this way we have to make changes um I think a lot of people in the hospital systems maybe didn't feel remorseful, mm. and I hope they never sleep again.
1: <laughs> did um, did Eddie's character was it a conscious choice to sort of de compartmentalise him? So he had the sort of the the character that's basically very caring to the family, mm. but then he's this ruthless killer, and you didn't mix them. Like you did keep them. In, well, in two compartments.
3: That's quite true to life. So um, the real Amy always said to me that Charlie was her best friend. He was funny and he was really quite shy and he didn't like the hospital, but not in a way that you were like, oh, he's killing patients. So no one really knew. And I think see, because the film is from Amy's perspective, Amy's point of view, we can do that. We can stay with her. And you don't ever have that moment where, you know, you see Charlie secretly murdering someone and then you come back to Amy and the audience gets ahead of her and you feel like she's silly. We went the way Amy experienced it. So she moved through it thinking, this guy is great. He's my best friend. He's helping keeping me alive. He loves my daughters. He's like my safe person. And then one day the police arrive and are like, we think he might be killing people and we think your hospital's covering up.
1: It's a powerful drama. Yeah. <laughs> could you could you just give us the redacted pitch just to finish off, please?
3: Yes, so The Good Nurse is the story of America's Most Prolific Serial Killer, or so we'd like you to think, so you put your bums in seats, but what it's actually about is one woman, Amy Lauren, a nurse who caught America's Most Prolific Serial Killer. Amazing. <laughs> How's
1: that? <laughs> Amazing. Well, let's play the trailer.
3: Hey. <laughs> What's going on? you know work's been pretty awful without you there you and i were partners you
0: know i don't want to talk about work is it because what they're saying is true so how are the girls they're really good but
3: I'm working a lot. You
0: still owe me for
3: last Friday. But it can wait, really. Oh, no. I'm sorry. Nurse 50, sorry about that. Thank you. Bye, -bye.
2: Bye -bye. Bye Mom. Love you guys.
3: Nurse
1: Loughran, this is Officer Braun.
2: Do you remember Anna Martinez? There go. Yeah, it It was sudden. Mind taking a look at this? Hmm.
1: The
3: insulin in her system, it's a double medication error, which is really rare.
2: We understand that you work with a Charlie Cullen. Could he be involved in this?
1: She's their lovebirds. I cannot get over how cute your Vanessa is. Who's Vanessa? Oh,
0: my God. There's insulin in her system. Go oh, water,
2: nine
3: what do you mean no the hospital would have done something you would think So, so Yeah. do you remember working with someone named Charlie Cullen yeah there was a rumor about him they found insulin
1: in a dead guy's saline bag hey girls yeah calm sit Are
2: you being weird, Mom? He's be killing people without ever touching them. He's gonna get a new job, and it's all gonna continue.
3: I hope you guys can hear me. He's walking right now. Hey.
1: Great. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks, it's been a pleasure. And
0: that's it. That was our conversation with the rather brilliant Christy Wilson-Cairns. Moving on now to our main chat of this episode with the Oscar-nominated director Tobias Lindholm. Enjoy.
1: Tobias, welcome to the Filmmaker's Podcast. Thank you. Met very briefly yesterday. Uh, had a very nice brunch. Some good, uh, good food there. How, how are you feeling? You've got your film in the... London Film Festival. This must be a very exciting moment for you.
2: It's so exciting and it's exciting to to actually, you know, post pandemic be back with a live audience and to be able to travel with with films like this. You know, I've forgotten the joy of meeting the audience actually. So yeah, I'm thrilled.
1: I think it was it was definitely a, a challenge to get back into it. Like I, I remember when I started going back to networking events and, and film screenings, people were hesitant at the start and it it didn't sort of people didn't dive straight back into that kind of camaraderie and, you know, the joy of going to see a film at the cinema and it's so nice to be back this year, I think.
2: Oh, definitely. There was like a paranoia as soon as somebody would cough inside the theater, right? You would be like, <laughs> should I leave? Um, it seems why like we've been you know, returning to, to now just sharing the intimate moment of cinema.
1: So how did this all begin for you, this uh, amazing project? The, the Good Nurse, which we, I watched yesterday. Amazing film, really powerful drama. Uh, yeah, how did it all begin?
2: Well, I got sent the uh, the first draft of of Christie uh, Christie's script and read it on the flight over. Actually, when I was on my way over to do Mindhunter with uh, with Fincher, so it's 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 a while ago. And finishing the screenplay, I afterwards read Charles Graber's book and. Um, realized that Christie was on the path of something original here, because we had the opportunity of telling, you know, a serial killer story, but seen from the perspective of the woman who stopped him, um, an everyday hero that reminded me of my own mother, um, but who had, you know, the strange capacity of reminding a serial killer of his own humanity. And I thought that was a very original take on a pretty beaten uh, uh,
1: and as the script came to you, you've obviously got a writing background. How, how was that kind of process in terms of having read the novel, having read the scripts? What was the the writer part of your brain thinking when you when you first kind of read it and you thought, okay, I'd like to direct
2: this? You know, I remember thinking now I have the luxury that other directors have had when I was in the writer's chair of giving notes and leaning back and then clearly realizing that it wasn't possible. So. Uh, Christy and I engaged in a a great journey together. Uh, She would do the writing and I would lean on her. I mean, she's a great writer, so it wasn't like I needed to chip in and actually sit by uh, the keyboard and do the typing. But I could read what she had done and then only focus on how to humanize or make the scenes even more truthful, Um, which I think it made sense in the point that I wasn't writing, so I could read from a distance. It didn't feel like it was right here, like it is when I'm writing it myself. I could kind of keep it out in an arm's length, and uh, it's an objectivity, uh, isn't there? In some way, and 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 then that really helped me. Um, but or oh, maybe it's just the fact that Christie is such a brilliant writer that helped me. Who knows?
1: <laughs> and and I mean, how's it in the the Danish kind of health care system? Because mm-hmm. for me, uh, you know, English person. Hearing about the the horrors that go on with that, that world, mm. um, you know, if you don't, if you break your arm, you, you <laughs> there's nothing that you can do about it. If you don't have insurance, oh. um, you know, the whole system. Like, how was it getting your head around that from your perspective?
2: Well, it was basically, you know, reading the book, understanding it, and 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 trusting uh, the real Amy that helped us. But then. Also just remembering how dehumanized all systems can become if we're not careful. And um, if that's the Danish welfare system or if that's the American healthcare system, it doesn't really matter. It's, 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 it's all about seeing where there is lacks of humanity. And Amy's story was a proof that there definitely was a lack of humanity in the American healthcare system, at least in Pennsylvania and um, New Jersey when these, uh, when these crimes happened. So the script comes to you, what's the next part of
1: the process for you? Was the finance in place? Because it, it's been through a few iterations before right. you sort of finally right. got to direct it.
2: Well, I was waiting to find the right project to be the bridge between you know, my safe home in Copenhagen and then, um, and then US. I had a long conversation with Scott Franklin, the producer of the film, about how I wanted to make films and maybe even more how I didn't want to make them. Um, I had seen Scandinavian colleagues make ended up making films in the American or in the Hollywood film system that they shouldn't have made or films that they didn't want to make, but ended up making just because uh, the way the systems works. And 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 I was very aware that if I were replaceable, if it wasn't my project, um, then it wouldn't make sense for me to, to, to make it. And luckily... Uh, Scott Franklin, the producer of Darren Aronofsky is is used to a, uh, a director knowing what he wanted. So he promised me all of that right away. That was never a problem. And, uh, and then we went on the journey together. I remember meeting Amy as the first thing after uh, reading the screenplay just to make sure that the version that I saw Christy being, you know, um, pointing at was actually true. Um, it was hard to imagine that. She was so heroic, it was hard to imagine that. Her life was such a, a symbol of the whole dilemma in the film. I mean, she herself had a heart disease and she was caring for other people yet she couldn't get care herself. It almost seemed too good to be true in the sense of storytelling. Um, so that was the next step to meet her and to, to confirm this. And then it was to dive into the book and talk to Charles Graber, the writer of the book. I always, when, when we do these films, because you used the last third of the book as well, didn't you? That's right. So, well, I, we kind of used the whole book as a Bible on how to understand the system, but but we wanted Amy's story to be in focus. But I always try to ask myself, if this was a documentary, what would it look like? You know, what scenes would present themselves Is that to the world? Is that sort of coming down to truth? Either it's coming down to truth or it's at least uh, letting, you know, uh, shutting out my own imagination. You know, I remember when I was seven years old and I was playing with these, you know, toy soldiers and I, you know, I just realized suddenly they don't have any emotions. They can't die. This is all nothing. Um, and I kind of feel the same way with my own imagination. I don't find that especially fascinating. I do find the world around me fascinating and the truth of that. And how do we portray real life events? I'm, I'm educated as a screenwriter and it's so weird to say this, but I realized that the best dialogue in films have always been in documentaries. And I, I realized that in film school, you know, and, and I was like, so how do we understand the logic of rea- re- reality? How do we transport that into the condensed version of fiction? Um, and, and And that became the sport both in this and other projects. Charles Graber helped me a lot with that, and then clearly starting to um, look into hospitals and routines with nurses slowly a visual version of this started to build and emerge in terms of we have a theme with, with, with you know, with pipes, with water in them, or these tubes with, with uh, you know, connecting the IV back to the patient that becomes a visual language throughout the movie. And, um, and, and, and that all started quite early on in the, in, in, in like, the, the, the fucked and chaotic um, first thoughts on how to capture this.
1: So, so is that kind of part of the process for you? you? You're trying to keep the truth of the actual story. So the, the sort of the tone is, is how you, is that one of the main ways you felt that you sort of put your directorial spin? Because it's difficult to create a tone when it's a, it's when it's a true story mm-hmm. and you don't want to obviously go over the top we talked about yeah. that, that earlier i mean i noticed it it's it's you know the, the the hospital is a very oppressive environment when you sort of get there you you really feel the tiredness um of the, of the staff mm-hmm. working there but there's also kind of a, a quiet and everyone's busy like how did you Kind of put together this vision for
2: your own. I think it's simple. I think it's all about finding the elements. It's like storytelling is connecting all the dots, all the small events that all together becomes the story. And I think all the details from real life. Are those dots, and if we don't get them right, then we will be at some point, you know, limping in the wrong direction. We'll end up walking in circles instead of telling the story. So, so basically, down to understanding, you know, how would the room where the IV bags were hanging, what would that be, um, you know, how would would that be be, be set up um, in in real life, made me understand the system that the film basically is criticizing down to its details. And I found that extremely important from the beginning because if we knew that, and if that could kind of grow into the DNA of this film, then we would be able to liberate ourselves when we were shooting and just be present in what we could trust was a version of reality.
1: So, how, how was your process of picking your HODs, your your production designer, your um, your cinematographer, especially?
2: I had a lot of meetings, and basically, I needed people who, like me, was fascinated with documentaries, who who understood um, the quality of of realism, or not even realism, but but naturalism. I've always thought that there's a big difference between you know classic European uh, social realism, which has a sort of political statement built in it. Um, it looks at the individual as a prisoner of a certain social uh, group. Yeah, or we'll backdrop. Yeah, a uh, backdrop. And, uh, and and naturalism is basically just a kind of valueless look at you know reality. And um, and 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 there's a big difference in the two. Um, and and we talked a lot about that, um, especially Jody Lee Leipzig, the the DP, and I. You know, how could we New, you know, yet have a quality to the camera work and still neutralize it in a way so it would just serve uh, the bigger picture.
1: Do you, do you kind of work with mood boards? Were there reference films that you were kind of looking at? I mean, you, you're talking a lot about realism, so I'm guessing you're kind of going into the material rather than that direction
2: maybe? Yeah, I don't, I don't really believe in, you know, for me in, in mood boards and, and you know, I had a teacher in film school who said, if you don't have a point, PowerPoint. And it, it's kind of, you know, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going out to shoot a film to prove that I'm right. So if I sit down and I make decisions in a lookbook, then I've already made decisions on what this movie should be. And it would be kind of locked and, in my eyes, a little dead. I think it's interesting to go out, you know, without any comparisons other than like a scientist where you need to keep the answers open you need to go out and search You're not there to say this is the truth and then prove it. It's like what is actually happening here? Um, So I didn't want to lock us too much in but we did of course make some deals on our agreements on uh, How to do this and one thing that I liked was that the that the camera or the frame would represent the system so every time we would set up a new scene it would be how do we Portray the individual in the system, and and looking at the film, you can see that we slowly, as Amy realizes what's going on, we're shooting closer and closer to Charlie, which makes him more and more a prisoner of the world he's in. His space to move in basically becomes smaller and smaller. In the diner scene, for example, where she's pushing him uh, um, to get a confession, half of the half of, of of the frame is black, and it's basically the the, the, the neck of Jessica's well, she's leaning up against uh, so, so uh, of her chair. That so we're filming that, and that's half of it. And then the rest is is basically Eddie's face. And as soon as he's moving, he's kind of moving out of the system, and then back in. And the fact that he could move out there and there would be something we couldn't see because we didn't move the camera with him made it extremely exciting
1: i, I noticed that in one of the the first yeah. the first shots of the film when he's in by the television s- uh, screen yeah. and you take a really interesting instead of going in straight into the sort of tv uh, hospital drama resuscitation yeah you're you're actually sort of he's hid, he's sort of, sort of hidden a little bit you're like who is this guy yeah uh, and it sort of slowly zooms in and it's uh, it's a really fascinating sort of way to approach
2: it it is and it's it was also just my love letter to uh, to the verdict where you would uh, you know zoom in on Paul Newman as he is uh, playing pinball and drinking in that bar and you're just like what's up with this guy why is he just standing there why is nothing else happening was so effective in that film that that uh, it felt given to to salute that and then it gave Eddie a chance that I didn't think of before I saw it in the edit but Eddie had to find a physicality because that was the only thing that is isn't that scene he doesn't He's just a spectator, right? He's watching the other nurses fight for a patient's life, and there he is in the corner, and he had he had to find the shape of Charlie right there, and we shot that at the first day. Um, so I think that gave him an opportunity to find, you know, to make decisions on who is Charlie, and it gave me an opportunity to see where I felt it was effective and where we really could, you know. Um, peel off more layers into uh, the Charlie that Eddie was portraying.
1: And so, I mean, in terms of your, your grip gear and, and the way that you chose to actually shoot the film, was that all influenced as well by sort of creating a naturalness? I mean, because you can go into documentary shooting and then, but then you might have a document, a forced documentary yeah. feel, which is then again, it's something that sort of draws you out of the film.
2: Right, I mean, a, I've, done, I've done many movies with a handheld camera, and I think a handheld camera works when you want the audience to be in an illusion of this happening while you're watching it. Mm. Um, but this is based on a true story that we all know happened and he was captured in 2003. So everybody knows that that's not the truth. So we couldn't keep that illusion alive. So instead we had to like make other uh, rules for, for the look of it and, and I think the only way to do it was to make as observing a camera as possible and then fill life into the frame instead of camera bringing life to the world, so when we look down a hallway, we're just there, and whatever life is in that hallway, we get nothing more, nothing less, and we can't make it more exciting by moving the camera. The camera is nobody. The camera is not even the audience. The camera is the frame into this world, and by doing that, we it was never like a surveillance camera kind of idea, but nevertheless, it gave us an opportunity to say, okay, this world that we're portraying exists. The camera is our window in. Where do we really want to watch to see this from? Is it from the distance or is it close up? Um, and, and you know that idea defined a lot of days.
1: One of the shots I really enjoyed was. It's just a kind of a wide shot, and it's it's around the the kind of central desk, um, you know, of the hospital, and you've got the kind of medicine cabinet in the background, and you're you're not really sort of poking into the the medicine cabinet, and I think a lot of traditional. Uh, sort of hospital <laughs> dramas of any kind you'd you'd have like you know people rushing across you know beds emergency rooms Everyone's interacting with each other all the time and, and it's almost distracting in a way You know these there are all these dramas going on, but they're they're not always in the, the place that you're showing mm-hmm. uh, And I, I think that was a, a really interesting sort of choice of yours.
2: You know, it's it's it, it's funny I, I, I talked to um, my good old friend Thomas Winterberg that I, that I did movies with over the last decade and um We always talked a lot about that in real life, nobody is waiting for the drama to begin. Right? We're just living our lives. And then suddenly, while we are just about to marry somebody else, we're falling in love with a new one and it creates drama, but we don't want it in our lives. Um, The same way we need to treat these setups. It's not like, so just because we chose the window to be here, we have to fill it up with life. It needs to be over there. And once in a while, when you place a camera, everything that happens is is outside the frame. Um, And that's okay. You know, we should not hunt the turning points and the most drama all the time. We should just be available and then let um, let, let life uh, play out.
1: And do you, do you like shooting a lot of takes? Do you like sort of using masters? Is, is that kind of something that you've really found in, in in your work?
2: Well, with these great actors, it was, um, I made we made a deal to say, let's make sure that we get in the first wide shots, Are uh, the first shots we do. Mainly we would start with a wide shot and then move in like you normally would do. Once in a while I would with Eddie do the opposite and we would start in a close-up and then end up in the wide shot, which allowed Eddie to find the truth of the scene slowly. Once in a while. Jessica is extremely disciplined. So when she has found in the wide shot the truth of the scene, she's extremely good at reproducing it without leaving anything behind. Um, so what we did when 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 we rehearsed the whole film, we agreed that we would always do takes where we were 100% loyal to the agreements we had done already and to what we had prepared. And as soon as we had that, not a take before or after, as soon as we had that, we let it go and I allowed them to do whatever they wanted. Because sometimes doing what we had planned, they would realize another truth that was more interesting. And often in the edit, it would end up being a mix between uh, between the two. So, you know, Basically, it would be like the master, where we are very loyal to the script, and then we'd start to search for more truth as we played along.
1: And I think it's important when you're doing something that's so drama based that you are focusing on working around the actors and making sure what they've got is is motivated for them, rather than you know a lot of it, a lot of sort of technique is, is okay. We'll change the camera. This is the camera we're going to use. It's going to go from here to here. Yeah. You know, the actor maybe doesn't doesn't quite click with okay. I need to do this for this reason and then you're, you're sort of losing the performance, which is, you know, the most important thing.
2: That's always been my process, and that's the deal I made with, with Eddie and Jessica from the beginning was that we would never capture them in what the film wanted. We need to follow these human beings. And I mean, it, it's kind of logical when we make a story that celebrates humanity, if we wouldn't allow humanity to dictate the film, but want a technique to dictate it, then suddenly we would be slaves of another system. So so the only logical way to do this was to, 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 to allow them to be free within, Limits clearly, and and do you, do you feel it's
1: important to shoot wides at times? I I think it's so fascinating to see the body language that, that an actor brings. You know how they to react to their environment, how they how they live in the space that you've sort of created for them.
2: It was interesting, and they both went to like for those two, they went to nursing school. They took it so serious that. We all felt that portraying nurses, especially post-pandemic, we needed to be very loyal and truthful to the environment they worked in. And, and, and clearly, when we finally had the set and we were able to go in and shoot there, you know, I think a 10-year younger version of me would have said, well, we're not going to show you the set until we start to shoot and then have that surprise, you know, that yeah. curiosity. Um, but in this case, we were portraying nurses who have been there for years and done this again and again and again. Um, so I allowed them to to do nursing school and rehearse in the set as we were building it.
1: And did you always have these two amazing actors as your your leads in mind? Like, how how did the actual audition process come?
2: I remember being in a meeting with Scott Frank and the producer, and we talked about. I think we had gotten a list uh from the studio with you know male names that could green light the film you know that's 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 part of the system right and it was the most boring conversation i've ever had so we kind of decided to put that page away and start Corpor- corporate conversation it, it was like it does it's not a, it's an inhumane conversation it's a conversation about how many tickets did this access sell in his last film it had nothing to do with what we were doing, so instead of that, we just started to talk about movies that we had seen lately that really moved us. And Scott Franklin said, "I just saw Theory of Everything, and I think it Main. And I remember as soon as he said it, it just clicked. Like, ah, that's it. It's going to be Eddie. He's great. And three days later, I met him in London. And, um...
1: and I think it's a very inspired choice. I mean, Jessica's a classic example. You know, you know, she would definitely do this role amazingly. But. Eddie, it's such a transformative role from, I think, some of the expectations of him, and and it is probably the the most transformative since Theory of Everything. And I think it's really, really great the way you've sort of created this duplicitous character. How was it creating the sort of the two compartments? Because, you know, he's obviously a, a, he becomes a very close friend, but then working on this dark side of him.
2: Well, the the fun thing was that we had expected to have to, you know, go into this journey into the darkness together, and, and basically Eddie is like, as you've seen, ninety percent of the time he's a really nice guy in the film. So <laughs> there wasn't that much darkness. It was much more the darkness in the in the imagination of the audience. and in Amy that that we were creating, um, Eddie is an extremely nice guy, and he's very, very professional. so so um it was it was a joy to work with him. i I, I felt blessed every day going um, going home uh, from set. And I would say I agree that that, you know, it's almost expected that Jessica is great. But you know, let's just take a minute here and celebrate how crazy that is, that you can always just expect a great performance. Zero Dark 30 was the first film ever where I bought a ticket straight from the 3 p.m. show to the 5 p.m. show. I just wanted to see it again. Um and her humanity and the cold, or the well, the cold and restrained way she kept that in Zero Dark was for me, some of the best I've ever seen. You know, it brings her right up there with with Mel Streep, if you ask me. So um, so to even have the ambition or hope that she could do something just near that almost felt, you know, arrogant. But I did. and luckily she said yes. and and i'm I was I've been blown away by her performance every day. Um, not many actresses are able to come in with that energy and with that honesty and just serve the story. She would, you know, she would um, wear this earwig, and and we would then play heart rhythms into her ear. So whenever she would have a problem with her heart, she would have an earwig, and then I would turn up the volume and the speed of the heart. So go, 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 would suddenly be here in the ear, so she could start to, you know, physically um, react to what she was feeling. Um, and that all came from her. That was her process, you know, finding the truth in in the character. I was uh, I was amazed by how. Uh, you know, brilliant this expected brilliance was. Yeah,
1: it, it is a phenomenal performance. How, how did you work on the rehearsal? Did you have time for rehearsals with the, with the main sort of cast before the shoot?
2: I always insist on, on time to rehearse. I think the only way to be totally free um, when we shoot is to, 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 to rehearse and know the material and make the decisions uh, or make decisions beforehand and then open it up as we get there. Um, because of the pandemic, um, we were not able to uh, meet on stage and work without Max on, but we could meet in my home. So we would meet in my apartment and, and, and work for, 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 for weeks. In a normal everyday live environment, having tea and lunches and just talking and doing scenes and taking it to the floor and then going back to the kitchen table and talking about, you know, what we could improve, and, and and so that was a very organic process. Surprisingly, you know, as me moving over to do my first uh, American feature.
1: And how was it doing your first American feature? I mean, did it... You've got a lot of work behind you, but was this was this a big difference in terms of how the systems work?
2: There was more people. But in, in Denmark and here, I always insist that everybody there are filmmakers, so every morning we will meet up, and I would talk through the full day, why are we doing these scenes, what's happening, so that everybody, the ones who makes the coffee and the ones who's you know, carrying the cables, whatever, all of them are there because they wanna be part of making a film. So we would all join and talk about it. And in that way, it became a very intimate, you know family of people that created a film together so 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 it didn't feel that different maybe also because you know my producer protected me very much from the system that I didn't know uh, so maybe I just didn't see it but I never felt any different did you did you kind
1: of feel any pressure working with that level of actors i mean you'd work with some pretty impressive Talent before, mm. um, but were you thinking, okay, this is the American system? I'm I'm away from home. Is there is there a challenge there?
2: I never thought about it that way. At least I, I've been part of the sausage factory long enough to not be you know blown away by by. Uh, we kind of know what happens behind the curtains, but you know, uh, soccer players and bicycle riders and UFC fighters. That those are the ones that really starstruck me. But <laughs> uh, you know, actors, filmmakers, and musicians. We kind of know <laughs> that it's just a lot of hard work and bravado. Um, so so, so I never felt that. I clearly felt that the system I knew, you know, in Denmark, I'm used to making films with my nine close friends, and I'm putting up the poster the night before the premiere on my own in, in, in Copenhagen. So it's different in that way. Uh, but the process and the working with, uh, with the talent around me was basically the same. And it's all about being, or making yourself available to find the truth. Um, and as long as I'm not there to prove that I'm right, then I'm never in a position where I'm on the line. It's always just it's always the truth.
1: A, it's always a discussion. and of it's, always, it's always finding out yeah, ra- it's, rather than implementing.
2: Exactly, and it's not necessarily a discussion between me and the talent. It's a, or an actor or a DP. It's a conversation between all of us finding it. And then clearly, it's my responsibility to be um, uh, to be the captain once in a while and say, now we're going to sail this way. But I think that the search for truth is where the film is made. Uh, the decisions when they're made, then it's just to do it. So it's so it's in that area before you know exactly what you're going to do that everything is created. And how does you learn to write though? I mean, it's it's not
1: the structure of both novels and screenplays are, are very precise. Um I mean, I, I think i I learned purely by watching films., there you and, go. I, and I think I think ta- film taste does come into it a lot. I think if you have a good taste of and you know what makes a good movie, what versus what doesn't make a good movie, and you sort of have a general idea in the background of your mind. Is that how you learned by, you didn't sort of go through the Save the Cat and and all those kind of screenwriting novels and sort of structural lessons?
2: I'm not a big, you know, self-help book kind of guy. I I got into film school, right? And suddenly, every Monday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., I was just in a theater watching movies with a guy telling me why these movies was important. And that itself was a big education and part of my understanding of what a scene was. And then Mons Rukov, the more or less inventor of the Dogme movement and, and a you know, big influence on, on Danish films and the, and the writer together with Thomas Winterberger on Celebration. Um, he was the teacher at film school at that point. And he said something very simple to me that made me understand what screenwriting is. He said, A screenplay can only be what we can see and what we can hear, and it's the combination of the two that makes us feel something. And it's pretty simple, but it's far away from literature where you are, you know, able to express emotions and all kinds of stuff. A screenplay is very practical. What can the audience see and hear, and how do we combine the two into emotions? And him saying that didn't make it easier, but at least I had an understanding of what path I was on, what was it that I needed to try to understand, the connection between what we see and what we hear and how we observe the world. And that's an expression of us having something in common, sharing a humanity between us, which makes us both connect to a thing we see and a thing we hear, and then we feel something. And very often we feel the same watching that. That's magical. And and, and him saying that, was like whoa suddenly i understood all the stuff i didn't understand but at least i have an idea of you know what to look for yeah i've always
1: found films to me it's it's a cathartic experience and it's it's always about feeling something or and and it's all very well to mentally connect but it is the emotion of connecting with a character or, or a story especially if it's one outside of your own sort of background that is so incredibly rewarding and i think i think the kind of projects that you've you've done have always been quite emotionally charged Thank you. Um, so that that's uh, definitely to your credit. So so okay. So you've you've done you've done film school. Yeah. Um, you've made a couple of shorts. Is that no like, shorts. No shorts. Okay. Straight into TV was your first writing job.
2: So I wrote in film school, and then Thomas Winderberg called me a couple of days before I started.
1: You've collaborated with a, a couple of projects. Yeah.
2: So I didn't know him, but when I got out of film school, he called me and said, "Do you want to write my next feature?" I was like, "What?" Sure, and it was based on a novel called Submarino, and became our first film together. At the same time, I was starting to develop Bogan with two other guys because we had this idea that um, it could be fun to make a Danish version of West Wing and we had no illusion that it would ever be greenlit, but um, uh, but it did. So suddenly, I was quite busy. So, so did did the film school kind of connect you to these people? Like is it
1: is it that kind of school where you're immersed into the industry? Because uh, yeah. you mentioned your your. Connection with Thomas, for instance.
2: So the Danish industry is so small, so everybody kind of okay knows each other. I didn't know anybody, but going into film school, I made a lot of friends out there, and and I guess that Thomas's producer was part of the team of people that accepted me at film school, so he had kept an eye out, um, and and and. I think, pointed in my direction.
1: And what was the experience of working on submarines as your your first sort of major thing out of film school?
2: Working with Thomas for the first time was great because it, it made me realize that I could do this. I was like, I was with one of my heroes, like the best we had in Denmark, this young rock star that did Celebration, and you know. And I actually felt, not that I couldn't learn anything, don't get me wrong, but at least I felt like I was, you know, in the right field. And that gave me a thirst for more.
1: And then Borgen, of course, which I, I've just been watching. The last, coincidentally, not 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 as recent. <laughs> I've just smashed through the first two seasons. Yeah. Um, you know, I was literally binge watching it around every other thing that I've been watching because it's addictive and it's it's very good. And I, it is very much uh, a Danish West Wing. And I think I think one of the things I like about it, which you know, is kind of in, in your in all of your work, is the the humanity of the characters mm-hmm. um, because there's all this politics but you have to represent you know, the, the different parties. Some of them have very, uh, very out there views which, which are hard to humanize. How did you sort of work on creating all of those? Um, you know, is it, very, is it completely accurate to the, the sort of the Danish political system or was there a lot of uh, creative license taken there as a starting point?
2: No, so, so the ambition was to create a exact copy of our system but then make new parties. So we wouldn't allow the audience to just have sympathy with whoever they would vote for in real life, but make it a little more difficult to navigate in. It is a coalition government, which means that we have right now, I think there's like nine or 10 parties in government. This election uh, has just been announced. So now, um, you know, campaigning is on and we'll see a lot of people promising, you know, the audience or the electors, the voters, a lot of things, and then they have to come in together and do a compromise afterwards. So that's like the basic system, which is interesting. And there's 189 seats in the Danish parliament, so you need to count to 90 every time you have, you know, you want to pass something, you need to have 90 votes behind it. That system we took and we copied it and then we populated it with characters that we liked. For example, we had never had a Danish female prime minister at the time. We invented Birgitte Nyborg and, and a couple of years later, we had the first female prime minister. And I remember one thing that struck Did me. Did the show uh, preempt it? We got a car- thank you card from the prime minister when she was elected. So I, <laughs> I, I think she, she thought so. Uh,
1: I mean, she's a, she's a phenomenal prime minister in, in the in, in the show. Oh, she is. Uh, she I is. mean, all, all of the characters are so... Well-defined and um,
2: one of one of the famous real prime ministers left his party and created a new party called after Biggie de Nubour's party in Borgen So it's all kind of meta. getting into it's getting a little too crazy right now. No, but what what I think was most interesting was that we created I created I remember writing a scene at a press conference where a journalist would instead of asking about the law or the, the, the political work that the prime minister was doing, he would ask her about her wardrobe. And I got so many notes back saying that would never happen. And then when we finally got a female prime minister, one of the journalists stood up and asked about her shoes. And it was such an embarrassment to democracy. Um, and to it's, it's unbelievable and, it actually yeah. happened, isn't it? But it did happen, and and, and 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 I actually think that we were a little too soft on it. Um, I think that the real first prime minister, hiltoning uh, she had a harder time being a woman in office than than we anticipated. In terms of
1: the the characters and, and the storyline, did you have it mapped out, you know, from the start, or was it was it very much a sort of a a building process in terms of the those first series that you worked on.
2: Well, we had the first 20 episodes, the first two seasons, we had like an arc, like the journey from being a loving and caring uh, wife and mother on her way out of politics to the more cold machinery professional uh, she is at the end. And we had a premise being, can you maintain power and maintain yourself? And we tried to structurally answer that question within the 21st episodes. Then we knew that we wanted to touch on different relevant Danish political dilemmas um, Denmark's relation to Greenland. Uh, Denmark's relation to immigrants, Denmark's, you know, soldiers in Afghanistan, stuff like that, or environment, uh, environmental uh, uh, problems or questions that we could write. So so we kind of had that idea. And then we would sit down, three of us, and outline two episodes at the time. And then me and another writer would take an episode each home and finish that. And then we'll do the same a couple of months later. So, so, so that was so you, the So you would
1: write sort of individual... Episodes each or would you would you write one and then you'd send it back to the, the other writers or the, the producers for notes? Like
2: we would Jeppe and I, Jeppe, Jeppe Gabby and I would, would write one and two, three, four, but you know, like a pair and then Adam Priese, who was the the showrunner, you could say it's it's different in the Danish system. But he was more like a so he was he was he was the person in between the writer's room and production. So he would kind of take it to the director and go on, while we would then write the next episode.
1: So, what, what were the challenges of going into your first feature as a director? And, and was it a conscious thing? I want to direct now.
2: It was so scary. I had never, and you know, I, I had never been on a film set before, so basically, I had no idea what anything was. And because we didn't have any money for that film, I did not have a first AD and I didn't have a script, so a script supervisor. So we would kind of be lost you know, just floating in space and then they would, they would, you know, beat Pilu up and then we would film it and we could clearly feel it because it was real, but we wasn't sure what it was. So during that production, I started to learn, understand how to block a scene or what a scene even was Uh, when you were filming. What I realized was that from screenwriting, I knew how to talk to the actors about the story. But i had no idea what the relationship between the actor and the camera was and that was all news Um, so
1: So that was your kind of primary method of communication was okay the story's doing this the character's doing this in the story that's that's kind of how I'd, i'd like you to do the scene that kind of thing
2: right and suddenly understanding you know if you do this with the camera what does that how does that affect the 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 actor or the story is the if a phone rings Will the camera be aware that the phone will start to ring in two seconds so it's over there already and then the phone rings or will it react to the phone ringing? And it sounds pretty silly and simple now, but it's pretty big decisions.
1: And what did you sort of learn from that going forward as a, as a director that you've been able to take into your, your other work, other than the acting?
2: That's a good question, but I think I learned that or every, and the only thing you can trust as a director is your ears and eyes. It comes back down to what you see and what you hear. There's no intention caught on camera. There's only what you see and what you hear. And we have to make sure that there is an opportunity for the audience to clock whatever it is you want to tell. If not, then you're going to have a trouble in an edit room. And I learned the hard way. Uh, with that first one, um luckily, I had a great editor, Adam Millson with me who's also the editor of the good Nurse he's been with me for now uh, fifteen years uh, but i but I learned not to take anything for granted that there's nothing that intention will never be caught there's only what we have done that will be caught.
1: Have there been any moments in your career where you felt like you weren't going to get to uh, you know where you are now because it's I think it's an important um you know part and parcel of the filmmaking journey is is you know Suddenly, you're making films with Jessica Chastain and and Eddie Redmayne, and right down the way you're at film school. Like, there's always a part when you're when you're in it, it's very difficult to get to that next that next step up, that next step
2: up. The interview I did just before I came here made me think: Will I ever do another interview? (laughs) It's part of it. Like, I'm constantly doubting, Um, and and you know, luckily, if not, then I would just be there to show that I'm right. I'm constantly on the search for something, and I never feel that I made it which is like a a weird statement, made what? Yeah, I made the good nurse together with a beautiful group of people. And you know, I'm not an island, I'm not alone. It's not about me making it, it's about finding the truth in what we do. And then once in a while, if we're lucky, we're able to make an entertainment piece of storytelling. Um, and And I think that's the key, not to think too much about it. Basically, I'm a very small boy from a town south of Copenhagen, missing my mom and just trying to make it, not knowing exactly what that is. But leaning into these groups of people in, in this room now or which reminds me of being on a, on a film set with all the lamps and lights and everything around us and behind us, right? Every morning on the set of Good Nurse when we would all meet up with a cup of coffee and talk through the day reminded me everybody was quiet. Everybody was just focusing on understanding what they could do to tell the story the best possible way. I think maybe that's making it, you know, creating that space right there was beautiful.
1: Tobias, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's a really good chat. I Thank you. Thank you. You
2: can go out there and make your films. You can
0: make it happen. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty to send the elevator back down. We will see you next Tuesday as always. Bye bye. We hope you liked today's episode. If you want to hear more, visit our Patreon for bonus clips and exclusive content.